Chapter Twenty Two of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty Two. Who's there? Approach. Tis kindly done, my learned physician and a friend, Sir Eustace Grey. Our narrative retrogrades to a period shortly previous to the incidents last mentioned, when, as the reader must remember, the unfortunate knight of the leopard, bestowed upon the Arabian physician by King Richard, rather as a slave than in any other capacity, was exiled from the camp of the Crusaders, in whose ranks he had so often and so brilliantly distinguished himself. He followed his new master, for so he must now term the Hakim, to the Moorish tents which contained his retinue and his property, with the stupefied feelings of one who, fallen from the summit of a precipice, and escaping unexpectedly with life, is just able to drag himself from the fatal spot, but without the power of estimating the extent of the damage which he has sustained. Arrived at the tent, he threw himself, without speech of any kind, upon a couch of dressed buffalo's hide, which was pointed out to him by his conductor, and, hiding his face betwixt his hands, groaned heavily, as if his heart were on the point of bursting. The physician heard him, as he was giving orders to his numerous domestics, to prepare for their departure the next morning before daybreak, and, moved with compassion, interrupted his occupation to sit down, crossed-legged by the side of his couch, and administer comfort according to the oriental manner. "'My friend,' he said, "'be of good comfort, for what saith the poet, "'it is better that a man should be the servant of a kind master "'than the slave of his own wild passions. "'Again, be of good courage, because, "'or as Yusuf ben Yagobi was sold to a king by his brethren, "'even to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, "'thy king hath, on the other hand, "'bestowed thee on one who will be to thee as a brother.' "'Sir Kenneth made an effort to thank the Hakim, "'but his heart was too full, "'and the indistinct sounds which accompanied his abortive attempts to reply "'induced the kind physician to detest "'from his premature endeavours at consolation.' He left his new domestic, or guest, in quiet, to indulge his sorrows, and, having commanded all the necessary preparations for their departure from the morning, sat down upon the carpet of the tent, and indulged himself in a moderate repast. After he had thus refreshed himself, similar viands were offered to the Scottish knight, but though the slaves let him understand that the next day would be far advanced, ere they would halt for the purpose of refreshment, Sir Kenneth could not overcome the disgust which he felt against swallowing any nourishment, and could be prevailed upon to taste nothing, save a draught of cold water. He was awake long after his Arab host had performed his usual devotions, and betaken himself to his repose. Nor had sleep visited him at the hour of midnight, when a movement took place among the domestics, which, though attended with no speech and very little noise, made him aware they were loading the camels and preparing for departure. In the course of these preparations, the last person who was disturbed, 
excepting the physician himself, was the knight of Scotland, whom, about three in the morning, a sort of major-domo, or master of the household, acquainted that he must arise. He did so, without further answer, and followed him into the moonlight, where stood the camels, most of which were already loaded, and only one remained kneeling until its burden should be completed. A little apart from the camels stood a number of horses, ready bridled and saddled, and the Hakim himself, coming forth, mounted on one of them with as much agility as the grave decorum of his character permitted, and directed another, which he pointed out, to be led towards Sir Kenneth. An English officer was in attendance, to escort them through the camp of the crusaders, and to ensure their leaving it in safety, and all was ready for their departure. The pavilion which they had left was, in the meanwhile, struck with singular dispatch, and the tent-poles and coverings composed the burden of the last camel. When the physician, pronouncing solemnly the verse of the Koran, "'God be our guide, and Mohammed our protector, in the desert as in the watered field,' The whole cavalcade was instantly in motion. In traversing the camp, they were challenged by the various sentinels who maintained guard there, and suffered to proceed in silence, or with a muted curse upon their prophet, as they passed the post of some more zealous crusader. At length the last barriers were left behind them, and the party formed themselves for the march with military precaution. Two or three horsemen advanced in front as a vanguard, one or two remained a bow-shot in the rear, and, wherever the ground admitted, others were detached to keep an outlook on the flanks. In this manner they proceeded onward, while Sir Kenneth, looking back on the moonlit camp, might now indeed seem banished, deprived at once of honour and of liberty, from the gleaming banners under which he had hoped to gain additional renown, and the tented dwellings of chivalry, of Christianity, and of Edith Plantagenet. The Hakim, who rode by his side, observed, in his usual tone of sensuous consolation, "'It is unwise to look back when the journey lieth forward.' And as he spoke, the horse of the knight made such a perilous stumble as threatened to add a practical moral to the tale. The knight was compelled by this hint to give more attention to the management of his steed, which more than once required the assistance and support of the check-bridle, although, in other respects, nothing could be more easy at once and active than the ambling pace at which the animal, which was a mare, proceeded. "'The conditions of that horse,' observed the sententious physician, "'are like those of human fortune, seeing that, amidst his most swift and easy pace,' the rider must guard himself against a fall, and that it is when prosperity is at the highest that our prudence should be awake and vigilant to prevent misfortune. The overloaded appetite loathes even the honeycomb, and it is scarce a wonder that the knight, mortified and harassed with misfortunes and abasement, became something impatient of hearing his misery made, at every turn, the ground of proverbs and apothems, however just and opposite. "'Methinks,' he said rather peevishly, "'I wanted no additional illustration of the instability of fortune, "'though I would thank thee, Sir Hakim, 
for the choice of a steed for me. Would the jade but stumble so efficiently as at once to break my neck and her own? My brother, answered the Arab sage, with imperturbable gravity, thou speakest as one of the foolish. Thou sayest in thy heart that the sage should have given you, as his guest, the younger and better horse, and reserved the old one for himself. But know that the defects of the older steed may be compensated by the energies of the young rider, whereas the violence of the young horse requires to be moderated by the cold temper of the older. So spoke the sage, but neither to this observation did Sir Kenneth return any answer which could lead to a continuance of their conversation, and the physician, wearied, perhaps, of administering comfort to one who would not be comforted, signed to one of his retinue. "'Hassan,' he said, "'hast thou nothing wherewith to beguile the way?' Hassan, storyteller and poet by profession, spurred up, upon this summons, to exercise his calling. "'Lord of the Palace of Life,' he said, addressing the physician, "'thou, before whom the angel Azrael spreadeth his wings for flight, thou, wiser than Solomon ben Diaud, upon whose signet was inscribed the real name which controls the spirits of the elements, forbid it, heaven, that while thou travellest upon the track of benevolence, bearing healing and hope wherever thou comest, thine own course should be saddened for the lack of the tale and of the song. Behold, while thy servant is at thy side, he will pour forth the treasures of his memory, as the fountain sendeth his stream beside the pathway for the refreshment on him that walketh thereon. After this exordium, Hassan uplifted his voice, and began a tale of love and magic, intermixed with feats of warlike achievement, and ornamented with abundant quotations from the Persian poets, with whose compositions the orator seemed familiar. The retinue of the physician, such accepted as were necessarily detained in attendance on the camels, thronged up to the narrator, and pressed as close as deference for their master permitted, to enjoy the delight which the inhabitants of the East have ever derived from this species of exhibition. At another time, notwithstanding his imperfect knowledge of the language, Sir Kenneth might have been interested in the recitation, which, through dictate by a more extravagant imagination, and expressed in more inflated and metaphorical language, bore yet a strong resemblance to the romances of chivalry then so fashionable in Europe. But, as matters stood with him, he was scarcely even sensible that a man in the centre of the cavalcade recited and sung, in a low tone, for nearly two hours, modulating his voice to the various moods of passion introduced into the tale, and receiving in return now low murmurs of applause, now muttered expressions of wonder, now sighs and tears, and sometimes, what it was far more difficult to extract from such an audience, a tribute of smiles and even laughter. During the recitation, the attention of the exile, however abstracted by his own deep sorrow, was occasionally awakened by the low wail of a dog, secured in a wicker enclosure suspended on one of the camels, which, as an experienced woodsman, he had no hesitation in recognising to be that of his own faithful hound. And, from the plaintive tone of the animal, 
he had no doubt that he was sensible of his master's vicinity, and, in his way, invoking his assistance for liberty and rescue. "'Alas, poor Roswell,' he said, "'thou callest for aid and sympathy upon one in stricter bondage than thou art thyself.' I will not seem to hear thee or return thy affection, since it would serve but to load our parting with yet more bitterness. Thus pass the hours of night, and the space of dim hazy dawn which forms the twilight of a Syrian morning. But when the very first line of the sun's disk began to rise above the level horizon, and when the very first level ray shot glimmering in dew along the surface of the desert, which the travellers had now attained, the sonorous voice of El-Hakim himself overpowered and cut short the narrative of the tale-teller, while he caused to resound along the sands the solemn summons, which the Mazines thundered at morning from the marinade of every mosque. To prayer, to prayer, God is the one God, to prayer, to prayer, Mohammed is the prophet of God, to prayer, to prayer, time is flying from you, to prayer, to prayer, judgment is drawing nigh to you. In an instant each Muslim cast himself from his horse, turned his face towards Mecca, and performed with sand an imitation of those ablutions, which were elsewhere required to be made with water, while each individual, in brief but fervent ejaculations, recommended himself to the care, and his sins to the forgiveness, of God and the Prophet. Even Sir Kenneth, whose reason at once and prejudices were offended by seeing his companions in that which he considered as an act of idolatry, could not help respecting the sincerity of their misguided zeal, and, being stimulated by their fervour to apply supplications to heaven in a purer form, wondering, meanwhile, what new-born feelings could teach him to accompany in prayer, though with varied invocation, those very Saracens, whose heathenish worship he had conceived a crime dishonourable to the land in which high miracles had been wrought, and where the day-star of redemption had arisen. The act of devotion, however, though rendered in such strange society, burst purely from his natural feelings of religious duty, and had its usual effect in composing the spirits, which had been long harassed by so rapid a succession of calamities. The sincere and earnest approach of the Christian to the throne of the Almighty teaches the best lesson of patience under affliction. Since wherefore should we mock the Deity with supplications, when we insult him by murmuring under his decrees? Or how, while our prayers have in every word admitted the vanity and nothingness of the things of time in comparison to those of eternity, should we hope to deceive the searcher of hearts, by permitting the world and worldly passions to resume their reigns, even immediately after a solemn address to heaven. But Sir Kenneth was not of these. He felt himself comforted and strengthened, and better prepared to execute or submit to whatever his destiny might call upon him to do or to suffer. Meanwhile, the party of Saracens regained their saddles, and continued their route, and the tale-teller Hassan, resumed the thread of his narrative, but it was no longer to the same attentive audience. A horseman, who had ascended some high ground on the right hand of the little column, had returned on a steady gallop to El-Hakim, and communicated with him. 
four or five more cavaliers had then been dispatched, and the little band, which might consist of about twenty or thirty persons, began to follow them with their eyes, as men from whose gestures, an advance or retreat, they were to augur good or evil. Hassan, finding his audience inattentive, or being himself attracted by the dubious appearances on the flank, stinted in his song, and the march became silent, save when a camel-driver called out to his patient charge, or some anxious follower of the Hakim, communicated with his next neighbour in a hurried and low whisper. This suspense continued until they had rounded a ridge, composed of hillocks of sand, which concealed from their main body the object that had created this alarm among their scouts. Sir Kenneth could now see, at the distance of a mile or more, a dark object moving rapidly on the bosom of the desert, which his experienced eye recognised for a party of cavalry, much superior to their own in numbers, and, from the thick and frequent flashes which flung back the level beams of the rising sun, it was plain that these were Europeans in their complete panoply. The anxious looks which the horsemen of El Hakim now cast upon their leader seemed to indicate deep apprehension, while he, with gravity as undisturbed as when he called his followers to prayer, detached two of his best-mounted cavaliers, with instructions to approach as closely as prudence permitted to these travellers of the desert, and observe more minutely their numbers, their character, and, if possible, their purpose. The approach of danger, or what was feared as such, was like a stimulating draught to one in apathy, and recalled Sir Kenneth to himself and his situation. "'What fear you from this Christian horseman, for such they seem?' he said to the Hakim. "'Fear?' said El Hakim, repeating the word disdainfully. "'The sage fears nothing but heaven, but ever expects from wicked men the worst which they can do.' "'They are Christians,' said Sir Kenneth, "'and it is the time of truce. "'Why should you fear a breach of faith?' "'They are the priestly soldiers of the temple,' answered el "'whose vow limits them to know neither truce "'nor faith with the worshippers of Islam. "'May the prophet blight them, both root, branch, and twig. "'This peace is war, and their faith is falsehood.' Other invaders of Palestine have their times and moods of courtesy. The lion Richard will spare when he has conquered. The eagle Philip will close his wing when he has stricken a prey. Even the Austrian bear will sleep when he is gorged. But this horde of ever-hungry wolves know neither pause nor satiety in their rapine. Seest thou not that they are detaching a party from their main body, and that they take an eastern direction?' Yon are their pages and squires, whom they train up in their accursed mysteries, and whom, as lighter mounted, they send to cut us off from our watering-place. But they will be disappointed, and know the war of the desert yet better than they. He spoke a few words to his principal officer, and his whole demeanour and countenance was at once changed from the solemn repose of an eastern sage, accustomed more to contemplation than to action into the prompt and proud expression of a gallant soldier, whose energies are roused by the near approach of a danger which he at once foresees and despises. 
to Sir Kenneth's eyes the approaching crisis had a different aspect, and when Adonbeck said to him, "'Thou must tarry close by my side,' he answered solemnly in the negative. "'Yonder,' he said, "'are my comrades in arms, the men in whose society I vowed to fight or fall. On their banner gleams the sign of our most blessed redemption. I cannot fly from the cross in company with the crescent.' "'Fool!' said the Hakim. "'Their first action will be to do thee to death, "'were it only to conceal their breach of the truce.' "'Of that I must take my chance,' replied Sir Kenneth. "'But I wear not the bonds of the infidels an instant longer "'than I can cast them from me.' "'Then I will compel thee to follow me,' said El Hakim. "'Compel?' answered Sir Kenneth angrily. Wert thou not my benefactor, or one who has showed will to be such? And were it not that it is to thy confidence I owe the freedom of these hands, which thou mightest have loaded with fetters, I would show thee that, unarmed as I am, compulsion would be no easy task. Enough, enough, replied the Arabian physician. We lose time, even when it is becoming precious. So saying, he threw his arm aloft, and uttered a loud and shrill cry as a signal to his retinue, who instantly dispersed themselves on the face of the desert in as many different directions as a chaplet of beads when the string is broken. Sir Kenneth had no time to note what ensued, for, at the same instant, the Hakim seized the rein of his steed, and putting his own to its metal, both sprung forth at once with the suddenness of light, and at a pitch of velocity which almost deprived the Scottish knight of the power of respiration, and left him absolutely incapable, had he been desirous, to have checked the career of his guide. Practised as Sir Kenneth was in horsemanship from his earliest youth, the speediest horse he had ever mounted was a tortoise in comparison to those of the Arabian sage. They spurned the sand from behind them, they seemed to devour the desert before them, miles flew away with minutes, and yet their strength seemed unabated, and their respiration as free as when they first started upon the wonderful race. The motion, too, as easy as it was swift, seemed more like flying through the air than riding on the earth, and was attended with no unpleasant sensation, save the awe naturally felt by one who is moving at such astonishing speed, and the difficulty of breathing occasioned by their passing through the air so rapidly. It was not until after an hour of this portentous motion, and when all human pursuit was far, far behind, that the Hakim at length relaxed his speed, and, slackening the pace of the horses into a hand-gallop, began, in a voice as composed, and even as if he had been walking for the last hour, a descant upon the excellence of his courses to the Scot, who, breathless, half-blind, half-deaf, and altogether giddy, from the rapidity of this singular ride, "'hardly comprehended the words which flowed so freely from his companion. "'These horses,' he said, "'are of the breed called the winged, "'equal in speed to aught except in the borak of the prophet. "'They are fed on the golden barley of Yemen, "'mixed with spices, and a small portion of dried sheep's flesh. "'Kings have given provinces to possess them, "'and their rage is active as their youth.' "'Thou, Nazarene, art the first, save a true believer, "'that ever had beneath his loins one of this noble race. 
a gift of the prophet himself to the blessed Ali, his kinsman and lieutenant, well called the Lion of God. Time laces touch so lightly on these generous steeds, that the mare on which thou now sittest has seen five times five years pass over her, yet retains her pristine speed and vigour. Only that in the career the support of a bridle, managed by a hand more experienced than thine, hath now become necessary. May the prophet be blessed, who hath bestowed on the true believers the means of advance and retreat, which causeth their iron-clothed enemies to be worn out with their own ponderous weight. How the horses of yonder dog Templars must have snorted and blown, when they had toiled fetlock deep in the desert for one twentieth part of the space which these brave steeds have left behind them, without one thick pant or drop of moisture upon their sleek and velvet coats. The Scottish knight, who had now begun to recover his breath and powers of attention, could not help acknowledging in his heart the advantage possessed by these eastern warriors in a race of animals, alike proper for advance or retreat, and so admirably adapted to the level and sandy deserts of Arabia and Syria. But he did not choose to augment the pride of the Moslem by acquiescing in his proud claim of superiority, and therefore suffered the conversation to drop, and, looking around him, could now, at the more moderate pace at which they moved, distinguish that he was in a country not unknown to him. The blighted borders and sullen waters of the Dead Sea, the ragged and precipitous chain of mountains arising on the left, the two or three palms clustered together, forming the single green speck on the bosom of the waste wilderness, objects which, once seen, were scarcely to be forgotten, showed to Sir Kenneth that they were approaching the fountain called the Diamond of the Desert, which had been the scene of his interview on a former occasion with the Saracen Emir Sherkov or Rilderim. In a few minutes they checked their horses beside the spring, and the Hakim invited Sir Kenneth to descend from horseback and repose himself as in a place of safety. They unbridled their steeds, El Hakim observing that further care of them was unnecessary, since they would be speedily joined by some of the best mounted among his slaves, who would do what further was needful. Meantime, he said, spreading some food on the grass, eat and drink, and be not discouraged. Fortune may rise up or abase the ordinary mortal, but the sage and the soldier should have minds beyond her control. The Scottish knight endeavoured to testify his thanks by showing himself docile. But though he strove to eat out of complacence, the singular contrast between his present situation and that which he had occupied on the same spot, when the envoy of princes and the victor in combat, came like a cloud over his mind. And fasting, lassitude, and fatigue oppressed his bodily powers. El-Hakim exclaimed in hurried pulse, his red and inflamed eye, his heated hand, and his shortened respiration. The mind, he said, grows wise by watching. But her sister, the body, of course the materials, needs the support of repose. Thou must sleep, and that thou mayest do so to refreshment. Thou must take a draught mingled with this elixir, he drew from his bosom a small crystal vial, cased in silver filigree work, and dropped into a little golden drinking-cup 
a small portion of a dark-coloured fluid. This, he said, is one of those productions which Allah hath sent on earth for a blessing, though man's weakness and wickedness have sometimes converted it into a curse. It is powerful as the wine-cup of the Nazarene to drop the curtain on the sleepless eye, and to relieve the burden of the overloaded bosom. But, when applied to the purposes of indulgence and debauchery, it rends the nerves, destroys the strength, weakens the intellect, and undermines life. But fear not thou to use its virtues in the time of need, for the wise man warms him by the same firebrand with which the madman burneth the tent. Open brackets. Some preparation of opium seems to be intimated. Close brackets. I have seen too much of thy skill, sage Achim, said Sir Kenneth, to debate thine hest, and swallowed the narcotic, mingled as it was with some water from the spring, then wrapped him in the hayek or Arab cloak, which had been fastened to his saddle-pommel, and, according to the directions of the physician, stretched himself at ease in the shade to await the promised repose. Sleep came not at first, but in her stead a train of pleasing, yet not rousing or awakening sensations. A state ensued in which, still conscious of his own identity and his own condition, the knight felt enabled to consider them not only without alarm and sorrow, but as composedly as he might have viewed the story of his misfortunes acted upon a stage, or rather as a disembodied spirit might regard the transactions of its past existence. From this state of repose, amounting almost to apathy, respecting the past, his thoughts were carried forward to the future, which, in spite of all that existed to overcloud the prospect, glittered with such hues as, under much happier auspices, his unstimulated imagination had not been able to produce, even in its most exalted state. Liberty, fame, successful love, appeared to be the certain and not very distant prospect of the enslaved exile, the dishonoured knight, even of the despairing lover who had placed his hopes of happiness so far beyond the prospect of chance, in her wildest possibilities, serving to countenance his wishes. Gradually, as the intellectual sight became overclouded, these gay visions became obscure, like the dying hues of sunset, until they were at last lost in total oblivion, and Sir Kenneth lay extended at the feet of El-Hakim, to all appearance, but for his deep respiration, as inanimate a corpse as if life had actually departed. End of chapter 22